The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. continuing our Bible study in the Gospel of John in the second chapter. I think you're going to enjoy this morning's lesson because uh, it's a great little insight on something that most of you probably have heard before, but you probably haven't thought about it in the way I'm going to have you think about it. Uh, I've titled the lesson Life Lessons on the Temple of God, but if I was going to give it a different title, I really thought about the title The Shadow of the Cross because that's really what we're talking about because John and his gospel have introduced us to some first concepts, first principles on who Jesus is. We had a couple lessons on that. First uh, witness, John the Baptist. First disciples, I introduced you to the first five. Uh, the first miracle last week in the wedding feast at Cana. Uh, this week, we've got the first hint of the coming of the cross. And got up on the screen uh, is from one of England's famous authors, William Holman Hunt, who painted what's up on the screen in 1860. And it's one of my favorite because it pictures Jesus uh, in his 20s. Uh, Mary is uh, looking through the chest of treasure that the Magi gave 25 years earlier when Jesus was born. Jesus is working in a carpenter shop. The sun is setting after a hard day of work. He stretches out his arms to stretch out his sore muscles and the shadow it casts behind him is the shadow of the cross. The artist is right biblically and theologically that the cross was always the plan. It's never a failure. It's never uh, the result of him not being accepted. It was what God planned from the very, very beginning, knowing what was going to happen in response to Christ. And the artist does a good job of capturing this. And if you ever are in Manchester, uh, England, you can see a copy of this. The lesson where we get this is in the cleansing of the temple. If you are familiar with the gospel accounts of the cleansing of the temple, you'll say, well, wait a minute. I thought that was in the last week of Jesus' life. I thought that was right before the crucifixion. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke record a cleansing at that time. John puts it in the first week of his ministry. So on the slide, I put the question, one cleansing or two? Uh, people have debated this for hundreds of years. I believe there's two cleansings for a couple of reasons. Number one, the details are totally different. The timing is different. Obviously, John puts it at the start of his ministry. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke put it at the end of his ministry. Uh, uh, John talks about a whip of cords. The Synoptic Gospels don't do that. Jesus' authority is described in the Synoptic Gospels from a biblical quote from the Old Testament. In the Gospel of John, it's based on his uh, divinity, the fact he is God. The language of Jesus is totally different. What he says to the, to the merchants, what he doesn't, or what he says to the, the, the Pharisees is totally different. He's questioned by the Pharisees and the synoptics. The next day, in John, it's, it's described as immediate. Uh, there's prophecy that I'm going to show you in this lesson of the coming cross. That's the whole point of it. In the, uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, there's no mention of that. The reason why this happened, in my opinion, is the other disciples weren't there. 
We know from John chapter 2, verse 13, when they leave the wedding feast at Canaan, it's explicit. It says Jesus and his mother and his followers and his disciples went to Capernaum for a few days. Then it says Jesus went to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. No Mary, no followers, no disciples, nobody. Now, we know from the other Gospels, when John writes, he doesn't write himself into the story. He wants it to be all about Jesus. So even if he's with Jesus, he doesn't mention that he's there. He writes as a firsthand account. He's got direct quotations. He's got details. He knows what's going on as an eyewitness. We know from the synoptics, there are other places where John will say Jesus went here. The synoptics will say Jesus went and took John with him. So we know from Scripture, John leaves himself out of the narrative. So when John says Jesus went up to Jerusalem in verse 14, it's pretty clear John is going with him because Jesus would not travel a three-day journey on foot by himself. It was dangerous. There were highway robbers. He would have been on that highway many, many times uh, as a teenager or really as a child or in his, in his young adult years. He would know you don't do that by yourself. With John as a traveling companion, it makes all the sense in the world. So I believe uh, there's two separate events. At the end, I'll tell you why. Uh, it's happening in two different times, but it's pretty clear to me it's two different accounts. So let's jump into the story in John chapter, I wrote up on the screen one, it's actually chapter two, verse 13. Sorry about that. It says the Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We know from John's gospel, Jesus had a three-year ministry. If you just studied Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would think Jesus had a one-year ministry. For three different years. That's significant because the three Passovers are what serve as a backbone for all the stories that I'm going to teach you about why that's important in the role Jesus played in Passover. The symbolism of Passover, if you were in our class a couple of years ago and I taught the Scarlet Thread, is multifaceted about pointing to Christ. The blood on the door, the exodus from evil, the, the, the Passover meal. There's dozens of details that all are pictures of Christ or pictures of the cross, but the blood on the door as literally a cross of blood on the door frame is what made the angel of death pass over that particular house. As you saw in John chapter one, when John the Baptist saw Jesus come and he said, there is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. So John has already started to tie these together in chapter one. We're going to see that over and over again. And the Passover is part of our symbolism. Throughout John, throughout the New Testament, First Corinthians and Revelation, there's multiple references to Jesus being the Passover Lamb. As we get deeper into the study, I'm going to go deeper into that point. I'm just introducing it here because John flags Passover as significant and Jesus is participating in the Passover, and I'm going to start to tie those threads together. So John doesn't make a big deal about it. I'm not going to make a big deal about it, but it's going to grow. John chapter 2 continues in verse 14. In the temple complex, once they're into Jerusalem, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. He also found the money changers sitting there. Now, I'll point out here that he describes the conduct. Three years later, it gets even worse. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they describe it, describe it as a den of thieves, 
as corrupt evil. It describes it in different ways that really characterize how bad it is over just three years. When Jesus shows up in the first year of his ministry, John does not describe it as a den of thieves. He just describes it as a marketplace which Jesus finds offensive in the house of God. Now, what I want you to understand from history is that the Jewish historian Josephus tells us in writing that you can read today that at the time of Christ, three million people came to Jerusalem for Passover. That's pretty amazing because Jerusalem at the time, we know from the Roman records, only had about 250,000 people. That's still big even by our standards today. By their standards, that was a metropolis. Add 3 million people on top of the 250,000 that normally live there. You can see why the high priest, who was very corrupt, saw this as a money-making alternative. Because if 3 million people are coming into town, you've got options. Where this would have been happening is in called the Court of the Gentiles. The normal Jewish people that weren't priests could not go into the main center of the temple complex. So when it says the money changers were there and the people selling all the animals were there, it's describing those big courtyards that Herod had built around the temple complex. So you would go into the outer temple walls and there would be the size of, oh, probably eight football fields of open space where merchants were selling. So eight football fields is a lot of space for a lot of merchants. Now, when Jesus is there, I'm going to teach you some fascinating things about what was going on. But the reason why it was happening was the high priest was using it to make money. In fact, they called it Annas's Bazaar. He was the high priest or was the high priest whose children now had that position. That position was bought from the Romans. It had nothing to do with religious merit. So that position was one that had to be paid for and had to be repaid for if you wanted to continue to have that position or have your children continue to take that position. So anything they could do to make money, they were all about. So they did a couple of things. Number one, you had to have sacrificial animals. You had to have, according to the book of Exodus, sheep that were without blemish, goats of a certain age, uh, bulls and rams of a certain type. And so if you brought your own, the person that checked it would say, nope, I see a blemish. That's not good enough. You have to buy ours. So people stopped bringing their own, knowing they were going to be rejected. We're going to be found to have some kind of fault. They had to buy theirs. Non-Passover time, a sheep would go for a certain amount. At Passover, that price went way, way up. Uh, not Passover, a ram or a goat would go for a certain price. Passover, the price went way up. The other thing that was fascinating was you had to pay a temple tax. It was basically income tax for being a Jew, and it was due at the time of Passover. But if you brought your foreign currency from anywhere else in Israel, from Galilee, from anywhere outside, particularly Egypt or Rome or Greece or anywhere else, you had to convert it to the shekel that they were using at the time called the Tyrian coins. I've got pictures of them up on the screen. The Jews liked the Tyrian coin because, one, it was rare. Most people didn't carry it around, so you had to buy theirs. 
Number two, it had a 94% silver content as opposed to normal Roman coins that had an 80% silver content. So it had a much higher silver content. So they enjoyed having that higher content in the coins they were using. I've always been fascinated by this little detail I'm going to give you of just how corrupt they were. The Jewish people that would come that would say, what's wrong with my money? You know what the conversion rate is to your shekel. The Jews would say, you can't use it because it has a foreign emperor's picture on it, or it has an idolater's picture on it. You can't use it. What they didn't tell the people is the Tyrian coin originally minted in Tyre, later minted in Jerusalem, had the picture of Baal on it. The Canaanite God was the coin that the Jewish leaders required for the payment of the temple tax. It was as offensive as offensive can be, but they were so ignorant, the people were, they just followed the dictates of the high priest, and he was as corrupt as you can possibly imagine being corrupt. So with that background, you understand why Jesus walks in and sees the house of God being defiled, and it's just as offensive as anything you can imagine. Let me give you a life lesson here. Life lesson is this was not Jesus' first time to Jerusalem for Passover. As an obedient Jewish child, as an obedient Jewish adult coming out of an obedient Orthodox Jewish family with Mary and Joseph, he was in Jerusalem every single Passover of his life. And he didn't say a word. He stayed quiet, despite seeing how offensive it was, how corrupt it was, how painful it was to the image of what God intended the temple complex to be, giving us a great life lesson. Even Jesus knew he had to wait until the right time according to the will of his heavenly father. That's true for us as well. You see something on TV and you're saying, I got to act now. We got to jump on this. You walk into a culture, you see something, you just want to jump on it. We've got to fight the urge, no matter how much we feel something is right inside, to wait until God tells you this is the time and it's time to act now. For Jesus to be quiet on Jerusalem for 29 years, you know, assume after he gets to 12, he could raise a fuss about it and he doesn't. So 12 to 29, he doesn't say a word because he knows God does not want him to say anything now because it's not the time to do anything. So Jesus waits till he's 30. God the Father tells him it's right. He acts obediently in the first week of his ministry. Verse 15, after making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. I highlighted he drove everyone out of the temple complex. He's one guy with one whip and eight football fields worth of merchants. Think about that for a minute. One guy with one whip and eight football fields might, if it's an ordinary guy, get two or three people to scatter and go to a different football field. He emptied it. How did that occur? Life lesson, the mere presence of God makes evil men flee little application for you. In my legal practice, I deal with people that are really, really bad. In my world, it's typically on the other side of a lawsuit I'm in. Almost demonic 
evil, greed, dishonest, angry individuals. And I'll go into meetings sometimes scared to death because their desire is that I die, literally. If they could generate my death, they would. And I go into meetings scared to death, and I go into every meeting the exact same way, praying, God, your presence is with me, your Holy Spirit's with me, let your Holy Spirit be in the room, let your angels be in the room. And I'm amazed time and time again how the evil energy in the room just evaporates if you go into a meeting or into a situation with a prayer, God, I need your presence to drive out evil. So I give that to you if you ever find yourself in that situation of a prayer you can make very simply. But the lesson of the Bible is the mere presence of God makes evil men flee. Now, I got also tackled the question of was Jesus a revolutionary? I mentioned this because in the last 15 to 20 years, I've heard so many sermons, at least heard the titles because I got tired of listening to them, on whether Jesus was a revolutionary. I primarily hear this in what I would call a seeker-friendly church. Uh, a church that's not real deep on Bible, not real deep on theology. They're trying to attract people that may have never been to church in their life. And for some reason, they seem to think if they can portray Jesus as a revolutionary, that he's kind of cool and kind of worth people listening to. So if you do a Google search, there are hundreds of sermons on was Jesus a revolutionary. And usually the running out of the merchants in the temple is the proof text of Jesus being a revolutionary because that's a pretty revolutionary thing to do. So since it's something that religious people have talked about, some politicians, I've seen political ads claiming that they're revolutionary just like Jesus. Uh, let me talk about it in just 60 seconds. He didn't join or lead the zealots, which were the revolutionaries of his time. In fact, one of his disciples was a zealot, who he said, you're going to be a disciple of mine. You're not going to be a zealot anymore. And he made his roommate, Matthew, the tax collector, who was the epitome of the government. And he said, these two opposites are now going to bunk together. <laughs> he preached about loving enemies and being peacemakers, the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5 and 6. And he repudiated any political elements of his ministry. From the start of his ministry up through his time with Pontius Pilate, right before his crucifixion, Anytime anyone wanted to be political, he said, I'm not going to be political. But he recognized that there's no utopia other than his reign. He recognizes that there's no human institution that's God's kingdom. He recognized that Christians are not to execute judgment on rulers. Uh, he said when asked, give to Caesar what's Caesar, give to God what's God's. That's meaning we're not to execute judgment, decide what we think is right over somebody that's godless leading a country or an organization. And he makes clear, the Apostle Paul picks up in both 1 Corinthians and Romans, that corrupt rulers answer to God, not men. So his focus on utopia is on his reign, not on anything a human being could create. But he also recognizes no complacency. What I just taught you about no utopias doesn't mean Christians are complacent. So rather than try to revolutionize systems like slavery, Jesus sought to revolutionize people who could then change their world. We see that with the individual disciples. We see it with his teaching. His ministry was always looking to reveal his character by reaching out to hurting people. He was friends with the zealots. 
He's friends with the tax collectors. He's friends with the people that society looked down upon, like the shepherds or the prostitutes. He was trying to reveal his character by reaching out to those that hurt. And he was never silent, but his message was always different. So he's not calling for the overthrow of Rome, the overthrow of the high priest. He was given a message, a focus on the Father, personal repentance, personal change, and that's what was different about him. So was he a revolutionary? He was a spiritual revolutionary because he wanted to change from what everybody thought it meant to be spiritual. But it was not a political or social zealot because his message was you got to change your heart. Because if you don't change your heart, the replacement that the revolutionary is trying to bring in is no better than what was the, there of the predecessor. We've seen that from Russia, from China, to Cuba, to even in the United States. If people want to revolutionize, usually because you're replacing sinners with other sinners, the replacement is no better than the predecessor. That's why I challenged the issue of Jesus the way I did as a revolutionary. Back to our text, verse 16. He told those who were selling the doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Notice how he refers to the temple. It's not the temple. It's my father's house, which was a claim of divinity. In Judaism, no one would call God my father. Jesus is the reason we refer to him that way. He was the first one to do it. His father's house. Remember going back to the Old Testament. Moses got commands by God what to build. It was originally a tent. Then under David, we got the plans for a building. Then under Solomon, we got the building. But it was always the same idea. It was the same shape. It was the same structure. It had the same content. And every single thing in there pointed to Jesus Christ, to God the Father, to sinful human beings, to a message of how God would deal with sin. It was God saying, you want to approach me? Here's the one and only way you approach me. You don't approach me by some other way you figured out, by some other religious belief system, by your faith. It's got to be by what I say it is. So the purpose of the temple was a bridge from a holy God to a sinful creation, sinful man. And before Christ, the bridge was the temple. After Christ, the bridge is Christ himself. So what we know about this is that the people, the children of Israel were horrible. They didn't do anything God said. They fought him in the desert with Moses. They fought him during the time of the judges. They fought him during the time of the kings with David, Solomon, and all the divided kingdom that followed. In Ezekiel chapter 10, it says the Shekinah glory of God, the physical presence of God, left the temple never to return. So for centuries, the temple is no longer the place where God resides. God said, I told you how to approach me. I told you what you had to do to be pure, and you've ignored it. And as a result, he sent them away into captivity and let the Babylonians destroy the temple. The Babylonians took every stone, every piece of gold. They took it down to the ground, even though under Zerubbabel, when Nehemiah came back out of Babylon, they rebuilt it. The Shekinah glory never came back. So when Jesus is there, the Shekinah glory of God has been gone for centuries. But yet they're still going through the steps of what God said you have to go through. They were just messing it up. So let me give you a little illustration on how I can kind of emotionally relate 
to Jesus' anguish over the place where God the Father used to physically reside on earth caused him. Personal illustration. My grandparents' house, my maternal grandparents' house out in the panhandle of Texas, that old place called Plainview, I thought was magic as a kid. I was as close to my grandparents as I was to my own parents. I spent every Thanksgiving out there with our family, every Christmas, every spring break, and large parts of every summer. And my grandparents, my grandfather was a farmer, far from wealthy, but he kept that little house really, really nice. Always had green grass, never had any weeds, planted trees around it back in the late 40s, early 50s. They grew up to be magnificent. Trees were always cared for. The house was always in meticulous condition. And they left in the late 80s and moved into town once he stopped farming because he thought it'd be safer for my grandmother. Uh, he was there for about 10 years before he passed away. My grandmother lived a little bit longer. Then she moved to Houston to live down here close to us. Uh, and last year, I had the chance to go back and see their home. The picture up on the screen is my grandfather's home. Uh, the yard was dead. The trees were dead. Weeds were popping up everywhere. And I came home and I told my sister, I am tempted to go buy that and turn it into a museum to preserve the legacy and the, you know, the mental imagery of my grandparents. And my sister said, you goofball, you can't do that. No one would come. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I know that, but I, that's how I feel about my grandparents' house. Now, if you lived in a house like that, if you had family or grandparents in a house like that, you can get a tiny, 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 tiny idea why Jesus was so upset that something that he loved something that he appreciated for what it was that no one else appreciated for what it was in their day. And that's a little bit of an illustration of hope helps. Verse 17. Now, if this is interesting because John now digresses and gives some editorial discussion because he's describing something that took place in about 30 AD, maybe 27 AD, we're not quite sure on the years. But when John wrote this, it took place about 45 to 50 years earlier. When writing it, he stops and he said, and his disciples remembered that it was written. Now, if you're just reading that in English, you're like, oh, they had pretty good memories. They later talked about the story John told them when John told them what happened when they went in Jerusalem for Passover. That's not what's going on at all. This is a picture of how we got our Bible. Let me jump forward to a lesson I'm going to teach in a couple of weeks. John chapter 14, verse 25 gives us the introduction of how we got our Bible, our New Testament. Verse 25 of John chapter 14, Jesus says, I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. So when it comes to the idea of the disciples, the apostles of Christ remembering what he said so they could write down in Matthew what Matthew remembered. So John could write down in John what he remembered. What the disciples could tell John Mark before he wrote his gospel of Mark. What the disciples could tell Dr. Luke before he wrote down his gospel of Luke. The Holy Spirit told them what to remember. Fast forward another page. John chapter 16, verses 12 through 14, Jesus gets a little bit more detail. He says, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, 
that's the Holy Spirit you just talked about in chapter 14, he will guide you into all the truth. Let me stop there for a second. The promise of biblical remembrance for writing scripture was to one group of people, the apostles of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, Joseph Smith. I'm sorry, Charles Taz Russell, Jehovah's Witnesses. The writers of Bible don't get to come from Illinois in the 1800s. Writers of Bible had one thing in common. They had a personal one-on-one -on -one experience with Jesus Christ. For all the disciples, gospel writers, James, the brother of Jesus, uh, the writer of Hebrews, they were all first-hand apostles of Jesus Christ. John, who's adopted, sorry, Paul, who's adopted into that group, occurs on the Damascus Road. And then he spends his three years with the resurrected Christ in Arabia during that time I taught you about when we were studying the life of the apostle Paul. It says in verse 13, he will not speak on his own. He will speak what he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. In other words, he's going to give you memory for gospel. He's going to give you memory for teaching. That's what Paul and Peter and others were writing after the gospels. And he's going to declare to you what is to come. To John, that's the book of the Revelation that Pastor Greg's preaching on right now. Verse 14, he will glorify me because he will take from me what is mine and declare it to you. So when he says in verse 14, his disciples remembered, John is not saying they had, oh, wow, don't you guys remember this? He's saying the Holy Spirit told us how to connect the dots. And we know that because he references a psalm. He says, and the disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house has consumed me. So John's saying after the resurrection, they were sitting around and the Holy Spirit reminded them of Jesus' first temple cleansing as John had told them about. And somebody said under the prompting of the Holy Spirit, guys, that reminds me of what David said in that Messianic Psalm in Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is David talking about the hatred of those that hated him for no reason. David says in Psalm 69 verse 4, those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head, many of my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I'm forced to restore, to give back what I did not even steal. He's describing total cultural, political, and religious rejection, very similar to Christ. Psalm 69 continues, because of your sake, he prays to God, I've borne reproach. Dishonors covered my face because everybody hates him. I've become estranged from my brothers, alien to my mother's sons, also true for Jesus to some extent. And it says in verse 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me. For David, that's saying, I love your temple and you in it so much, these other people want to kill me. It says the Holy Spirit in verse 14 told the disciples how to connect the dots. It's not saying they were great scholars and they had Psalms memorized. It said the Holy Spirit said, you know that verse you read back in Bible study? Here's how it connects to your resurrected Savior. And they put the dots together. So verse 14, where he says, for zeal for your house has consumed me, means the disciples realized after he was crucified and resurrected, how it connected with Psalm 69 and that prophecy. Now, notice what it says here in verse 18. It says, so the Jews replied to him, what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? 
stop and remember what's going on here. One guy with a little short whip walks in and eight football fields worth of merchants run for the hills. The disciple, the, the, the uh, uh, leaders of the Jewish people are just wondering, where do these people go? Why did they leave? Why is this one guy who just walks in, make them scatter like rats? He has no clue. So they walk up and say, by what sign do you do these things? The reason they did this is at the time of Christ, on average, three to four people a year for the past 150 years claim to be the Messiah. Three to four per year for 150 years claim to be the Messiah. So if somebody shows up with magic tricks, which they had prior to Jesus, the question was, by what sign do you do these things? In other words, you do your little magic tricks, you show us something showing you are from God. In other words, they want Jesus to jump through some hoops to show how he cleared out eight football fields worth of merchants with barely raising his voice. Great life lesson for us on the roots of unbelief. If you're not in the habit of listening to God, you have very little chance of hearing him when you start asking. I believe the Jewish leaders were very genuine. They wanted the Messiah. They wanted a different kind of Messiah, but they genuinely wanted the Messiah. And they recognized who Yahweh God was. Over the centuries, they just presided over a very corrupt religious practice. So they genuinely want to know who's the Messiah and who's God. They start asking and they can't hear. The life lesson for us is when you start sharing the truth with people that for decades have not listened to God, don't be surprised when they don't listen to you and they don't listen to God. You bring a friend to church that has not been listening to God for years, don't be surprised if they don't hear God through Pastor Greg. You bring them to class, don't be surprised if they don't hear God in class. If they're not used to going to God, it takes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit and you dragging them somewhere or you telling them something isn't going to suddenly make them start hearing from God. Life lesson number two. Sadly, most people don't want to hear from God unless it fits into what they've already decided the answer is or should be. They were looking for the Messiah to say, here's a sign that I'm going to overthrow the Romans and become your king just like David. They had a predetermined answer to the prayer request. So many times for us, we go to God and say, God, I got an employment problem. Here's the job I want. Pray for this job. God, I decided I need a new place to live. Here's where I want to live. I'm praying for this house. God, I've decided I need a new relationship. Here's the relationship I want. I'm praying for this relationship. Folks, that is as ungodly of a prayer as any prayer you can pray because you're telling God, here's what I would do if I were you. Hint, hint, wink, wink, big guy. Let me give you some insight on what ought to happen. That's as offensive to God as if your kids or grandkids do the same thing to you. You say, I'm your parent. I'm your grandparent. I know better. Here's what's going to happen. And their insolence, at best, you laugh off. At worst, you give them a swat on the backside. God is the same with us. Our prayers ought to be petitions to sovereign God, solve this problem. I'm not telling you how. I'm not naming the job, naming the house, naming the relationship, naming the financial issue, or naming anything else. I'm just saying, your God, work it out. 
the picture of the people in Jerusalem is they didn't want to hear from God because it didn't fit their script. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this sanctuary. I will raise it up in three days. There's a whole bunch of depth here. Let me unpack it real quick. I'm reading from the Holman translation, which is what Pastor Greg preaches from. That's what's up on the screen. The NIV and the NASB have a little bit better word here because it's a word that we're comfortable with. And that is destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. In the Greek, you could translate it temple or sanctuary, doesn't matter. Temple works out pretty well. When Jesus says this temple, he's referring to his body. He was the temple of God because I told you a few minutes ago from Ezekiel 10, the Shekinah glory of God departed centuries earlier. The Shekinah glory of God came back at Bethlehem with the birth of Jesus. The presence of God returned to earth at Bethlehem on Christmas morning because of God sending Jesus to earth. So the temple is a reflection to now the temple of God is in the person of Christ. When Christ was ascended back into heaven, then we have a different temple of God because the temple of God, when Christ ascends, is no longer God on earth. So what do we know from the New Testament is currently the temple of God. I'll give you a hint. We call it the body of Christ. What's the body of Christ? I'll give you a hint. It's in this room. It's in this building. Cross-reference. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves, Christians, are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst? Paul jumps forward, chapter 6, same book, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, in each of you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, seven temples in the Bible. The Tabernacle of Moses is number one. The Temple of Solomon. David planned it. Solomon built it. That's the big temple we know from the kings. The Babylonians destroyed it. Nehemiah comes back. Zerubbabel rebuilds a little building. It was nothing compared to Solomon. It was nothing compared to what's there at the time of Jesus. It was some rocks stacked up on top of each other, and it kind of fit the floor plan, but it was nothing glorious. Herod comes about, sees what Zerubbabel did, and said, that's a joke. I'm really going to rebuild this. So Herod spends five decades building what I'm going to show you in a couple of minutes is unbelievably magnificent. Jesus says, this is going to be destroyed. He refers to his body is going to be destroyed. The temple of God is in the body of Christ. He ascends into heaven. It's in the church. Revelation tells us the temple of God comes back during the millennial reign of Christ, when Christ literally rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem, and that's where he physically resides on earth for a thousand years, and you and I can all go see him there. And then at the very end of Revelation, the temple of God in the new Jerusalem. We are in the phase where I've highlighted on gold the temple of God in the body of Christ. The greatest evidence in response to the question the Pharisees asking is, what sign do you do these things? And he basically says, I'm God. You destroy this temple. And he points to his chest as he says that. And in three days, I'll raise it. What he's saying is, I've got power over life and death. 
He doesn't demonstrate it right then, but he throws down a challenge. If they understood it, no one could contest. It's pretty awesome if you can walk on water. It's pretty awesome if you can calm the winds and the waves. It's pretty awesome if you can give a blind man sight or a deaf man hearing. But when you can raise from the dead, it becomes very clear the power is the proof of your, of your divinity. Now, I want you to note the timing of his prophecy. The timing of the prophecy is why I could have called this the shadow of the cross, because the shadow of the prophecy is not him the week before his crucifixion, knowing what's coming in three days. The timing of his prophecy is the first week of his ministry. He hasn't preached a sermon. He hasn't brought anybody into the kingdom of God except his five disciples who are back in Jerusalem, or back in uh, uh, Capernaum, except for John. The timing of his prophecy before his ministry really begins is he's going to be crucified. It was not a surprise. It was ordained from Genesis chapter 1. And Jesus mentioning this in the first week of his ministry, which is the reason I'm convinced it's two accounts, a cleansing in the first week of his ministry when he announces I'm going to be crucified and raised again. And then fast forward three years, it's worse. They didn't listen to him and they got worse. Verse 20, the Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. They didn't get it, even though I believe he was pointing to his chest saying, tear down this temple and I'll re-raise it in 30 days because they looked at the majesty of this thing Herod had built. Amazing walls around the base, amazing porticos off to the side, a fortress where the Roman soldiers lived, a big fortress off on the other side where they did Jewish school. The magnificent temple in the middle covered in gold inside and outside. It took Herod five decades to build it. And they said, you can't rebuild this thing in three days. Missing the point, he's talking about his body. It says in verse 21, John says again with a little editorial comment, he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. That's the second time he uses the exact same thing I told you about back in verse 17. They remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and this word which Jesus had spoken. So John tells us twice so we don't miss it. We missed it at the time. John's saying, I was there and I missed it. I went back and told all the other disciples, you're never going to believe who cleared out eight football fields with one whip of his whip. It was incredible. And here's what he said about tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. The Jews didn't get it. The disciples didn't get it. If you miss the point that our Bible could not have been written by the mind of man, this drives home the point. The disciples admittedly didn't even understand, much less be able to concoct some religion we now call Christianity. It's the fingerprints of divinity that before a human being can understand it, Jesus makes it clear. And then what he's saying here is the disciples after his resurrection through the prompting of the Holy Spirit tie together the Old Testament, New Testament and go, hey, John, remember that story about the first week when y'all went up to Jerusalem for Passover? We get it. And the gospels then came forth. Now, application here, quote from Augustine back in the fifth century, the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed 
and the new is in the old concealed. The point is, Christianity in the New Testament isn't really new. Everything Jesus talks about, everything he did is in the Old Testament pointing towards him. That's why I spent two years teaching you guys the scarlet thread. If you don't, if you weren't here, tell me I'll get you the CDs or we'll get it online soon enough. Uh, but the point is, everything in the Old Testament is completed in Jesus Christ. Verses 23 through 25, and we'll end on this one. It says in verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. So we don't know exactly what he was doing, but a whole bunch of people said, hey, there's the Messiah, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he knew what was in man. That means dozens, if not hundreds of people, saw him do something besides clearing out eight football fields worth of merchants. There's probably some miracles in here. There's probably knowing some things about people that they didn't tell anybody. There may have been some healings in here. We don't know. But it says a whole bunch of people said, hey, that's got to be the Messiah because we've never seen this before. And it says Jesus did not give a single one of them the time of day. Why? Because he knew their heart. He knew they wanted a political genie in the bottle. They wanted a medical genie in the bottle. They wanted a banker genie in the bottle. They wanted a social, relational genie in the bottle. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, I'm not going to give you the time of day. We would have thought it was awesome. You're, picture yourself hanging out with John. A hundred people say there's Messiah. John knows it. John's like, hey, look, they agree with us. They're followers. Jesus doesn't give them the time of day because he knows their heart. Just like Greg said this morning, he knows our hearts. He knows your hearts. He knows everybody's hearts. Quick application will be done. What does, it, what does your body as God's temple really mean? Remember, the primary purpose of God's temple in Jerusalem was a bridge from a holy God to a sinful world. If our body is the temple of God, we become a part of that bridge. Your job, my job, is to be a bridge to get people from a holy God to a sinful world. Now, the amazing thing is we do that as sinners ourselves, just sinners converted to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We're still a part of getting people onto that bridge, which is really Jesus Christ. But here's really the true life application. Worship, if your heart, your soul is the temple of God, worship is not a place where you go like this campus or this room. It's a place where God goes with you. That means you worship when you go to your job. That means you worship or you can worship when you go to your house or your apartment. It means you worship when you go to the store. You worship when you go on a trip. You worship when you go out to a restaurant. Worship is not what you do here on Sunday morning. It's where you bring God to fellowship with other believers. But if you don't view your seven-day-a-week experience as a worship experience, you are not living with your body as the temple of God. A lot of people think, yeah, that's eating right and exercising. That may be a little bit of it, but that's not what the temple of God was. The temple of God is a place of worship.
So if we are the temple of God and you're not worshiping in your work, you're not worshiping in your home, you're not worshiping everywhere you go, you're missing the idea of worship. Sunday worship at this church is where you bring God in your heart, not where you come to find God. If you can get that down, it will revolutionize your Monday through Saturday. Don't view it as just a Sunday thing. Last point, we're done. Even the disciples needed the Holy Spirit to understand what Jesus was trying to say. Your prayer and my prayer on a daily basis is not rub the magic Bible and hope we get genie in the bottle that answers the prayer request we want. It's God through the Holy Spirit Tell me what you're trying to tell me. It's coming to prayer with open hands, open ears, and open minds saying, I'm not giving you a script. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not asking for anything. I'm just saying, be God and tell me what you want me to hear. It's supposed to revolutionize the way we pray. So stop asking for things specifically and just pray that God would be God. It will change the way you pray. And if you change the way you pray, change the way you worship. Everything else in life follows quick. You got it? Next week, life lessons from Nicodemus. We move into John chapter 3. Close, close with me in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come and study your word through the amazing life lessons in John chapter 2. There's so much richness. There's so much application. We just stand in awe at your Bible, at the Holy Spirit at Jesus Christ, at the world in which he lived and the world in which you've placed all of us. And we just say with open arms and open ears and open brain, God, tell us what you want to do. What do you want us to do as husbands, as wives, as friends, as children, as parents, as grandparents, employers, employees, all the different roles we fill. Tell us on a daily basis this week what you want us to do. We will worship you every day this week where we are and then come back together corporately next week to continue our worship on Sunday. Keep us safe until we return here to worship again next week. In Jesus' name, we ask all these things. Amen. Thank you all. Look forward to seeing you next week. Love y'all. Bye-bye. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.